Howdy. This is Too Busy for Crypto. This podcast is for fans of cryptocurrency who want to increase their financial literacy and cryptocurrency literacy. None of this is financial advice. I am not an expert. I am an enthusiast. This podcast is for education. This episode is titled, Bonds are Crowdfunding. This is the shortest way to describe bonds. This episode seeks to answer the question, what are bonds, in general terms. The global bond market is massive, bigger than the global stock market, and a more fundamental driver of money flows. When asking, why understand bonds, the answer is, to understand the cost of money. One aspect of bonds that makes it so popular in finance is that it is unknown or misunderstood by everyone outside of finance. Finance professionals make money by being bookies or brokers or money lenders. If you understand these people, then you can understand traditional finance. The major players of bond markets have an interest in keeping it boring and hard to understand. Bonds are all about fixed income, which is passive income. A person must be interested in the idea of passive income to have any interest in understanding bonds. What I will discuss in this episode in four parts. Part 1. Who are we trying to understand? Part 2. The Scope of Bonds Part 3. Crowdfunding and Bond Markets Part 4. Bond Math Lastly, the Closing Summary Let's begin. Part 1. Who are we trying to understand? Bookies, Brokers, and Moneylenders For bonds, we are primarily concerned with understanding moneylenders, but gambling bookies and trading brokers come into play secondarily. I will describe all three. Gambling bookies are middlemen that collect fees from gamblers up front for the service of maintaining a neutral supply of money that is ready to pay out as winnings. The fee is collected up front in the form of a spread between two outcomes of payment. A bookie can lose money three ways. One, by setting the wrong spread in the beginning. Two, if they do not collect enough money from both sides. And three, if they do not update the spread for new customers to cover the asymmetric risk. An uncertain outcome determines which gamblers get paid out, and the bookie keeps what is left. Trading brokers are middlemen that collect fees from traders up front for the service of maintaining a neutral supply of either counter-traders or goods. A trading bookie that supplies counter-traders is a broker of two parties that meet and exchange at one time simultaneously. A broker of goods must buy or sell goods with customers who expect the broker to make a one-sided transaction Anytime, the broker must ensure that his stocks are adequate, but not too large for any particular good. Goods that don't move don't collect fees, because a fee is collected on each trade. 
Money lenders have a supply of money sitting around. They want to put that money to work to make more money. They choose to lend the money to a borrower in order to receive a stream of payments that add up to more than the initial principal amount that was lent. This fee could be flat or a percentage. A percentage fee is called interest. The money lender is only interested to lend if interest is paid. Otherwise, the lender will be interested to lend his money elsewhere. The idea of interest is, what can you get for what you give? The word for this is capitalism. The interest fee is the cost of capital. Cost of capital dictates capital flows. Capital is money that can work. Money lenders are people with extra money that is ready to be put to work by lending to a borrower in exchange for payments in excess of the principal. It is not necessary for the lender to care about the fate of the borrower as long as the principal is repaid with added interest. To protect against risk of loss, the lender may employ a few risk hedges. 1. Make the borrower sign a contract, where failure to repay puts the borrower in a legal state of fault called default. 2. Make the borrower put up collateral, either upfront or as part of a contract, that the borrower loses if he fails to repay. 3. The lender assesses the borrower's ability to repay through a process called due diligence. 4. The lender requires additional parties or borrowers to accept the risk, which often takes the form of co-signing. These are some ways for the lender to be sure he will be repaid, which is a major concern for the lender. When learning about bonds, who must we understand? Money lenders primarily, but also bookies and brokers. Part 2. The Scope of Bonds I honestly can't give a solid estimate of how big the global bond market is. It is massive, and it is bigger than the global stock market. Estimates I've seen range from 40% bigger to 1,000% bigger, or 1.4 times to 10 times the size. I have not gone deeply into where all the numbers come from, but let's think about the scope of bonds from the standpoint of who issues bonds. I will list four general methods of issuance from government, from bank loans, from bank bonds, and from corporations. This is not a comprehensive list, just some basics. A few definitions. Packaging one or more underlying financial products into a new product is called a derivative. Loans or bonds or derivatives may all be underlying assets in a derivative. A derivative may also be called an asset-backed security. Loans are simple contracts, not securities. Bonds and derivatives are securities. A security is when you give an entity money, hoping they will return some form of profit to you without you having to do anything, 
until you decide to ask for your original investment back, which you hope the entity will return. First method of issuance from government. When a government spends money, the government treasury department or finance ministry prints bonds by entering into a computer that they exist. A central bank prints currency by adding digits to its cash account. The central bank gives the currency digits to the government for them to spend as cash, and the central bank becomes listed on the bonds as the party to whom the government will pay interest payments. That could be the registered owner or beneficial owner. Next method of issuance. From bank loans to people. A bank lends money to borrowers in the form of loans. One loan for one borrower. The bank then creates a financial product called an asset-backed security, which combines the risk and payments of all the loans into a single contract that can be sold to another bank or securities broker. A commonly known version of this is the mortgage-backed security. The loan is the asset used as backing for the security because payments are promised. Again, a security is when you give someone money and they promise to pay you back based on the work of others. Mortgage-backed securities, MBS, are derivatives, but they are treated like bonds because the individual loans within them are so small. Next method of issuance. From bank loans to business. Corporate bonds are said to be bonds issued by businesses. To be precise, in the U.S., a company must employ middlemen to issue bonds. An investment bank gives money to the company, like a loan, when it conducts a bond sale to bond brokers. The investment bank writes digital bond certificates, which are contracts that the company will make payments to whomever buys the bonds later. The bank gives the bond contracts to a bond broker to sell on the bond market. Corporate bonds are usually backed by some kind of collateral. When they are unbacked promises of payment, that is called commercial paper, often abbreviated CP. Corporate bonds and commercial paper are securities that are circulated widely around financial markets. Although these products may sound like derivatives, because of the middlemen, they are considered to be original products because the middlemen pass the payments from the business to the bondholders. Next method of issuance, from existing bonds. This is when multiple asset-backed securities are combined into a third-level product. Level 1 is the original loans or bonds. Level 2 is the derivative that aggregates many loans or bonds. Level 3 and beyond is derivatives on derivatives or bets on bets. Some names for these that you may have heard are collateralized debt obligations, CDOs, or collateralized loan obligations, CLOs. These additional levels often break up the interest payments to different customers. Maybe some customers get a less risky and lesser size payment and other customers get a more risky and greater size payment. 
through magical statistics and the overused concept of diversification, these bets on bets are considered to be low risk. If you watch the movie The Big Short from 2010, there is a poker table scene that explains how these can create a chain reaction of bank failures when underlying bets go bad. This applies to all derivatives, but especially derivatives of derivatives. Derivatives are made to look and act like bonds for the purposes of selling them to customers, but they are bond-based interest-paying products. Now that we have considered some methods for creating bonds through issuance, let's briefly consider who is involved in the creation of bonds. National governments of every country in the world, governments of states within countries, governments of cities within states, national central banks, multinational big banks, regional banks, and companies ranging from tens of millions in assets to billions or a trillion in assets. Bonds are the primary form of debt in global markets. Currencies are based on bond issuance, so money starts with bond issuance. Nearly all large-scale debt funding is crowdsourced through bonds, and derivative bets are compounded on those underlying bonds. This is the scope of bonds. The global debt market is a giant game of musical chairs. Everyone is running around handing payments to each other until the music stops and everyone has to hold on to what they've got and hope they have something. One must consider the difference between bonds that are on the market or not on the market. Current bond prices are affected by what is on the market. It is easier to know what bonds are on the market rather than what is active but not up for sale. To combine the considerations for scope into a general scope of the bond market, we add 1. That both original debt and derivative debt may be treated as bonds. 2. That virtually all governments, banks, and businesses are involved in issuing debt in the form of bonds. And 3. Bonds stick around until they expire at their maturity date. All government growth and most corporate growth is fueled by debt. And even though there is a large loan market, the bond market is giant because banks offer lower interest rates to bring in customers with the expectation that they will get to sell the loan to a bond packager. The scope of bonds is massive. I assume the global bond market is anywhere from 2 to 10 times the size of the global stock market. I will usually say 2 times bigger to keep it simple. I think no one actually knows because of the size and complexity of the market, which is why the estimates vary so wildly. I will mention one website that has great infographics called visualcapitalist.com. Search for Visual Capitalist All to find www.visualcapitalist.com slash all of the world's money and markets in one visualization 2020. This webpage shows 90 trillion in global stocks versus 253 trillion in global debt in 2020. 
that's 2.8 times larger. They show in 2022, the global bond market as a component of all global debt is $133 trillion, which is about 47% bigger than that 2020 stock market number. This is on their page, quote, ranked the largest bond markets in the world, end quote. On top of that is derivatives, which their 2020 page shows as having a market value of $12 trillion but a notional value of somewhere between 500 and 1,000 trillion. We would only begin to find out the real numbers if there was a financial meltdown and losses weren't being hidden. The numbers are definitely bigger now in 2023 since absurd amounts of money were printed since 2019. That's the scope of the bond market. Part 3 crowdfunding, and bond markets. I have introduced who creates bonds, why they create bonds, and the scope of the market. Now I'm going to talk about crowdfunding and ratings. Crowdfunding seemed like a new thing when the website GoFundMe appeared on the internet in 2010. According to bondfunds.com, the first surety bond that we know about was issued around 2400 BC in Mesopotamia to ensure payment for a delivery of grain. In the 1100s AD, Venice began issuing government bonds to fund its wars, known as the Presiti. The first ever government bond was issued by the Bank of England in 1693 to raise money to fund a war against France. These first bonds were a mix of both lottery and annuity. Crowdfunding is not a new thing. Taxes are a form of crowdfunding. Taxes are as old as civilization. War is as old as life. Taxes have always funded wars. As soon as taxes were not enough, and a class of financial professionals existed, bonds were created as a means to fund wars. The word bond is a word for a contract. I am focusing on bonds that raise money to fund an issuer. The difference between funding a war with taxes versus bonds is that taxes must be paid now, but bonds may be paid later. As soon as interest is used to increase the total payments, the deal has been sweetened, so rich people and speculators are happy to be promised a stream of payments for years in return for their upfront contribution to the war. Bonds alleviate the resistance to paying taxes by paying interest and offering a persistent cash flow in return for financing. Passive Income the whole reason bonds are so popular is because it is a source of passive income or cash flow. The terms passive income and cash flow are often used interchangeably. The potential income by passive means is unlimited versus a single person's ability to trade life hours for a wage. Buying bonds is buying a right to interest income on lending that the bondholder did not have to set up. The bond issuer takes the initial risk of arranging a bond issue. 
then the bondholder assumes the risk of default in return for rights to payments. The notion of rights to interest payments stems from the fact that bonds are liabilities to payors and assets to payees. A bond payor is a government or business that obtains the asset of cash to spend now, but the bond payee retains claim on that cash regardless of when or how the cash is spent. The simple fact that the bond payor received the cash in exchange for a promise to pay interest is the basis for the rights of the payee. This is a matter of accounting and contract law. Bond Market Structure A bond market is full of bond payors and bond payees. Bond brokers match these two parties together in exchange for fees. In theory, the bond payee becomes the registered owner of the bond with rights to the interest payments assigned to each bond. Each bond is a unit share of a total amount of interest payments from a bond issue that was arranged at the start. Buyers of bonds look across the market for the highest yield at the lowest price and lowest risk. In bond terms, yield describes what the buyer gets in terms of both interest payments and the discount or premium on the bond price. When looking at the multiple bonds for sale in the market, the buyer must compare not only the price versus yield ratios for multiple bonds, the buyer must also compare the default risk and expiration time for each bond. An investor hopes that the bond principal is returned when the bond matures, which is the expiration. They also hope that the payments occur on time. Bond payors, like government and businesses, may be more or less risky as time goes on. The change in risk and reward is apparent to bond buyers based on the difference in current price versus price at issue and current yield versus yield at issue. Bond buyers can assess the quality of bonds for sale on the market based on factors such as the following. 1. Price versus yield. 2. Default risk and credit rating. 3. Time to maturity and interest rate risk. 4. Timing of payments. 5. Government or business issue. 6. Type of government or business. 7. Business sector. 8. Development level of country. 9. Geographic region. 10. Taxation requirements. 11. Local currency of the bond. Most buyers of individual bonds are institutions like central banks, multinational banks, investment banks, foreign governments, and bond funds. This is because the price of a bond issue is so large that only institutions have the money to pay for the majority of the issue. Bonds are not issued if there are no large institutions willing to buy. 
individuals may buy bonds directly from a broker or from the U.S. government. The U.S. government sells bonds directly to the public at treasurydirect.gov, which is a website run by the Bureau of Fiscal Service. Individuals may also buy bonds at a brokerage where they have some type of personal account. Individuals may not buy individual bonds through a 401k, because that is administered by an employer and only mutual funds are offered. Most people gain exposure to bonds through the purchase of bond funds, like mutual funds or exchange-traded funds, ETFs. Mutual funds and ETFs that buy bonds typically buy lots of bonds all the time and have a turnover of inventory which results in an averaged out risk and reward profile for the owner of shares in that fund. Each fund states an objective of what bonds they will acquire. Funds will buy bonds based on the factors mentioned earlier. Price, yield, defaults, ratings, expiration, interest risk, payment times, government or business, sector, geography, taxation, and currency risk. That can sound like a lot, but when you start comparing bonds yourself and you have some idea how these different factors affect each other, it becomes much easier to determine what you want. Institutions take a much more granular and cutthroat approach than retail investors because every penny and every hundredth of a percent matter to them. As I discussed in my last episode about stocks, bonds are also all owned by the DTCC through their subsidiary, the FICC. The DTCC is the Depository Trust Clearing Corporation. The FICC is the Fixed Income Clearing Corporation. The FICC is the registered owner of all fixed income securities in the U.S. that are obtained through a brokerage. You do not own bonds outright. You can be the beneficial owner, and the FICC is the registered owner. All banks and exchanges agree to have a single entity own everything. Since they literally self-police through organizations called SROs, self-regulatory organizations. No government or person can stop this practice. This all started in 1973, ostensibly to cut down on paperwork and increase security, but it is part of an ongoing financial coup, which accelerated in many areas in the early 1970s. Now, to discuss ratings and defaults, which affect who is the crowd in crowdfunding. The financial industry rates bonds for their risk profile. Ratings are issued by ratings agencies like Moody's and Standard & Poor's. A risk profile basically addresses whether a bondholder will recover any money in the event that the bond issuer fails to make payments. Just like with loans, if an issuer fails to pay interest to the holders, the issuer is in default. That means the issuer is legally at fault for not making the payments obligated by the contract, which is the bond. A government 
who can silently tax citizens by printing money to pay any debt gets a triple A rating because they can always pay and are therefore a low risk. A small company that is not profitable and could go bankrupt any time might be awarded a single C rating, which is a step away from default rating. In general, there is a market expectation that a high-quality issuer will offer a lower interest rate, and a low-quality issuer will offer a higher interest rate. Just like with loans, a higher interest rate is intended to offset the risk of the bond becoming worthless if the issuer defaults. When it comes to bond rating agencies, ratings can seem political or like there is a conflict of interest because there are only a few ratings agencies and a few major investment banks running the bond market. This became apparent to many of us after 2008 and was described in the movie The Big Short in 2010. Ratings, regardless of their accuracy, are a marker of the bonds standing in the market. They are a marker of the expected range of interest rates relative to other ratings. And they are a marker of how much the market for that rating will gain in price in a bull market or how much it will sell off in a bear market. Low-rated bonds often move more like a stock index than a high-quality bond index. Ratings matter to the industry, so just because they may not describe the whole truth of the issuer, they do describe the truth of how the market will treat them during different market phases. Typically, governments get top ratings, then there is a large band of ratings called investment grade, then the lower band of ratings is called either junk bonds or high-yield bonds. Many entities, like pensions and endowments, can invest in investment grade, but not junk bonds. The financial media or marketers will use the term high-yield bonds if they want you to buy, or junk bonds if they do not want you to buy. It is a matter of who is marketing or propagandizing to whom. It is ultimately up to the investor to decide what the rating means in terms of risk and if the yield being offered is enough to compensate for that risk. This concludes the section on ratings and defaults and bond market structure. Part 4. Bond Math I have pushed the topic of bond math to the end. I have discussed bonds at a broad level, including who uses them, the scope of the market, and market structure. Bond math begins in terms of a single bond and progresses into bond funds. Some major elements of bond math are 1. Coupon payments don't change and are the value anchor for bonds. 2. Single bonds pay simple interest. Compound interest requires many bonds. 3. Yield may be expressed in different ways, like nominal, current, or real yield. 4. Bond duration time is less than or equal to bond maturity time. 
bond duration expresses how much bond price will move when interest rates change. Point 1. Coupon Payments Bonds are offered at a set price of $1,000 per bond certificate in most cases. This is called face value. This could be a larger or smaller amount like $100 or $10,000 or $100,000 and so on. For discussion purposes, we always default to assuming a bond is $1,000 each at face value. What do you get for $1,000? Buying a bond at a face value of $1,000 gives the bondholder the right to receiving the bond coupon. The coupon is the cash payment tied to the interest rate of the bond. A $1,000 bond with a 3% annual interest rate provides for a $30 coupon once per year. A semi-annual bond splits that $30 into two $15 coupons, each paid every six months. It is the same total payment as the annual, but you can reinvest half of it earlier. A bond pays a coupon payment, which is the dollar amount derived from the original bond interest rate based on a bond's face value at issue, typically $1,000. An 8% annual coupon on a $1,000 bond will always pay $80 of interest per year. The $80 coupon will never change. The bond price can and will change from face value as soon as it enters the secondary market or is auctioned in a primary market. Secondary markets and auctions are essentially the same because the price is a function of supply and demand. If the market is hungry for that $80 coupon, the bond price goes up. If the market could not care less about that coupon, the bond price will go down. Point 2. Simple versus Compound Interest Single bonds provide simple interest as opposed to compound interest. The coupon payment from a single bond is simple interest. Simple interest is a fixed payment determined by the bond characteristics when issued. The simple interest rate of a bond is also known as nominal yield. Nominal means named. Nominal anything generally means not exact or not current. The term current yield of a bond takes into account the current bond price and coupon payment. When the bond is issued, it has a face value of $1,000. The culminating event of the bond issue is the bond auction. Let's say a corporate bond is created by an investment bank. Then a broker-dealer conducts the auction, and investors buy. The bank is a middleman between the corporation and the broker-dealer. And the broker-dealer is a middleman between the bank and the buyers. If the U.S. Treasury is issuing government bonds, then they conduct the auction, and the Federal Reserve and a few other entities buy those bonds via the auction. The Federal Reserve buys most Treasury bonds because that is a key step in the process of creating money out of thin air.
Point three, ways to express bond yields. At any auction, bond price is determined by supply and demand. A key thing to repeat is that face value and auction price are not the same. Bond price becomes variable as soon as it enters a market. The term current yield reflects how the purchase price changes the yield at maturity on top of the coupon payments. Lower purchase price means higher current yield. Higher purchase price means lower current yield. The bondholder still gets the same coupon payment, but the current yield expresses directly what the yield will be if the bond is held to maturity and the $1,000 face value is returned. The current yield expresses indirectly whether the holder could make additional yield for selling the bond at face value. If selling rather than holding until maturity, the holder can never know what the bond will sell for, unless that holder is a big bank that is being bailed out by the Federal Reserve or FDIC. During bailouts, the Fed or FDIC perform a legal but corrupt practice known as paying face value for worthless or low price bonds. In functioning markets, the current yield is simply an indicator as to what kind of a deal a new buyer of a bond might get versus face value. An old 5-year bond that pays 3% but costs $950 may be more attractive than a new 5-year bond that pays 3% but costs $1,000. The question to the buyer becomes, what could happen in that last year? In any case, the face value of $1,000 is returned to the holder when the bond reaches maturity. Maturity is jargon that means that the term of the coupon payments expires and the principal is returned. Now a tangent. Auctions of U.S. Treasury bonds are a persistent oddity because auction prices stay close to face value, regardless of high or low demand. This is related to the open and public conspiracy that the government will issue a massive sum of bonds and the central bank will instantly create a massive sum of money to buy most of the bonds, leaving a little side action to make it look like a free market. Government bonds and central bank fiat currency require each other to keep up the appearance that something reputable and financially sound is occurring. End of tangent. Back to bonds. Besides current yield, another factor to consider is real yield. I consider real yield to be the most important metric of any yield-producing tool. Real yield is yield minus price inflation. It is the analyst's preference whether to use nominal yield or current yield. That means it is a choice whether to consider just the coupon payment or the coupon plus the market price versus redemption price. For the price inflation number, if you trust government data, your inflation number will be lower than reality. Example. A buyer considers a bond with 3% nominal yield. The government says price inflation is 5%. Reality is price inflation is 8%. Using government data, the real yield is negative 2%. 3 minus 5 is negative 2. 
Using a more realistic 8% inflation, the buyer would calculate negative 5% yield because 3% yield minus 8% inflation is negative 5%. Negative real yield is a major factor in decisions made by big investors. In some cases, the investor, like a government or pension plan or endowment or mutual fund, is so constrained by rules that they must buy bonds with a negative real yield because it is part of their rules to buy some type and portion of bonds. Everyone else chases the highest possible positive real yield. Point 4. Interest Rate Risk and Duration The term bond duration refers to the point at which received cash flows equal the bond price. This does not make intuitive sense in basic math terms because complex formulas are used. Bond duration is less relevant for a single bond than for a bond fund because duration is affected less by simple interest and more by compound interest. Compound interest requires reinvestment of yield. The reinvestment of interest payments from a bond fund acquire more shares of the bond fund, and therefore more interest payments, which gets a bondholder to the break-even point faster. The faster one gets to the break-even point, the shorter the bond duration is relative to the bond maturity. Or in terms of the effective duration of a fund versus the average maturity of all the bonds in that fund. Using simple math on a single bond, a 5% yield on a $1,000 bond earns $1,000 in 20 years. The duration of the bond, regardless of the maturity date of the bond, is 20 years. That is duration through basic math. However, bond nerds and the financial industry use a complex formula called Macaulay duration. Compare the basic math on simple interest versus basic math on compound interest. A person buys $1,000 in shares of a bond fund that pays a 5% yield. Bond fund yields change every day and are re-rated every month as SEC yield. But we will assume here that the yield stays the same. The first year, the person gets $50. The second year, they get $52.50, which is 5% of 1050 By year 15, the 5% yield is generating $100 annual payments instead of $50, and the shareholder has earned $1,000. This means the duration, using simple math, is 15 years. 15 years using compound interest versus 20 years using simple interest regardless of the bond maturity date. Again, the financial world uses the Macaulay duration formula, not this simple math. I present simple math to illustrate the concept. The important thing about looking up the reported bond duration is to understand the interest rate sensitivity of the bond, which is the most important use of Macaulay duration. Interest rate sensitivity means how much does the holder stand to gain or lose versus a new bond of the same type at a new interest rate. 
the old bond will face a new market price, which only matters if the holder intends to sell. It is even more useful in evaluating bond funds, like mutual funds and ETFs, that hold and turn over lots of bonds and offer compound interest through reinvestment of yield. It is common to see a bond fund that holds many different maturity dates that has an average maturity date of 10 years with a duration of 6 or 7 years. Oftentimes, the effective duration of a bond fund is around 60 to 80% of the average maturity of all holdings. Example An aggregate bond fund with an average maturity of 10 years has an effective duration of 7 years. The market interest rate for all bonds goes up 1%. Then the value of the bond fund drops by 7%, which is the duration times the interest rate. If the market interest rates all drop by 1%, then the value of the bond fund goes up by 7%. This inverse correlation is one of the most important elements to understand about bonds and the bond market. To reiterate, bond duration times change in interest rates equals the percent that bond price moves oppositely from the interest rate change. Short-term bond funds like money market funds or 0-2 to two year funds will change much less than a 20- or 30-year bond fund when interest rates move. This form of price leverage is called interest rate sensitivity. It sounds benign, but it is a powerful force in markets that can break markets and make or break investors. That ends part four, bond math. Now, the closing summary. Bonds are a crowdfunded loan. Governments and central banks use bonds to create unbacked debt-based currencies for infinite spending that derive value by silently taxing the wealth of anyone who holds the currency. Government uses the money from issuing bonds to engage in war. Infinite money printing means infinite war. Corporations use bonds to fund themselves through debt instead of taking out a simple loan. Bond issuers pay interest to bondholders instead of to a single bank. The financial industry loves bonds because they have created a cascade of middlemen that are required for every level of bond transactions and analysis. Middlemen are there to get a slice of profit from any market activity. The middlemen of the financial industry also love to create derivatives, which are bond-like products based on bonds, such as mortgage-backed securities, collateralized debt obligations, and other arcane products. Underlying bonds are a massive market, and the derivatives market is incomprehensible. Money flows into the bond market and trickles out into stocks and derivatives. Any underlying problem or black swan event in the bond market can create a negative cascade that shakes the global economy. 
investors are perpetually drawn to the bond market because they want a fixed income that they call yield. Investors want a positive real yield that outpaces price inflation and is relatively safe versus other assets during economic downturns. Negative real yield drives away investors, unless those investors are required to buy. Besides real yield, interest rate risk is a very important aspect to understand about bonds. Rising interest rates lower existing bond prices, and falling interest rates raise existing bond prices. In addition to this, ratings are an expression of bond risk that are assigned by agencies who take money from a bond issuer and give a rating to the bond being offered to the market. The usefulness of ratings is situational and is always up for debate. The major players of bond markets have an interest in keeping it boring and hard to understand. Bonds are all about fixed income, which is passive income. A person must be interested in the idea of passive income to have any interest in understanding bonds. I hope my discussion helps you to better understand or articulate some of these ideas. Thank you for listening. Have a great rest of your day.